Episode 71, Using AI to Democratize Legal Access Globally. My interview with LawPath co-founder, Dominic Woolwich. Dom is the co-founder of LawPath, Australia's legal online legal platform. Through LawPath, Dom and his co-founder, Tom Wells, have revolutionized legal access for over 400,000 small businesses. Inspired by the digital shift in other industries and driven by experiences at Minister Elson and Legal Aid, Dom leveraged AI to democratize legal services. Today, LawPath ranks globally, aiding in the creation of 5% of Australian startups. Enjoy. Have you been enjoying the TechSavvyLawyer.page podcast? Consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast feeds. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you being here. And to get things started, please tell us what your current tech setup is. So I am currently chatting with you on a Mac. I have a three screen setup. I've always got Slack open. Slack's my kind of main piece of software. Everything personal and everything business-wise always goes through Slack these days. I also use kind of a, a piece of software called France, which brings my Slack and my WhatsApp and my iMessage and my okay. email and my yeah. all into the one window which I find very useful because, you know, you never really know what medium or what channel your messages are going to come through. So having them all in one window works really well. But I work every day from the office, so I try and make sure all my equipment's at the office so when I go home, it's not there. I don't have to jump on it, which works quite well for me. I like the the separation. I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. What kind of Mac do you have? So I'm on a MacBook Pro. Okay. Is it the M1, M2, or is it the Intel chip? It's the Intel chip. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Now the M1, M2s when you can. Actually, I think this could be an M3 coming out soon. Those <laughs> things really cook. And for the listener, unfortunately, they're going to hear a little bit of redundancy from me. And I, I'm going to offer some suggestions for you. You okay. know, being a, a Mac person myself, number one, if you can get the Apple credit card, because you'll get mm-hmm. 3% cash back on any purchases you make with Apple. Okay. Go into your local Apple store and open a business account. They're free. Mm-hmm. And as I always say, Apple tends to give you a little bit of a white glove treatment. And this is sort of like white glove on top of white glove. Okay. So you get that. And lastly, look at MacRumors.com. They're mm-hmm. a great website when it comes to a buyer's guide. They have the life cycles of the different devices. They have ideas when things are coming out. It's a great yep. resource to look at. So, and also talk to the business people about if you want to lease versus purchasing. So maybe you don't want to put all that money down in one uh, shot. But on the other hand, paying a little bit over time might be the smarter thing to do, especially for lawyers who are just starting out with their own practice. That's very good advice. I'm actually due for a a new Mac pretty soon. So I think I'll be using those three things. And I have a Mac Pro with an M1 chip Mm -hmm. and it really cooks. And I've got a Mac Studio with a M1 Ultra chip and that thing cooks as well. So I think you're going to really enjoy it. Now you saw my eyes bug up. And of course the listener can't see my eyes bug up when you said three screen monitor setup. Tell me what you have. Like, how is it set up? So I've got the Mac and then I've got two Lenovo monitors. I'm very big on having all of my windows open. Same here. Like I've got kind of Slack. I've always got email open and then typically whatever software or CRM that we're using. So I'm a very visual person. So, you know, three screens is sometimes a little bit of overkill for those people that really want to focus, but I just love having it all up in front of me. So yeah, that's the setup. 
I do the same. I've got an XDR, a $6,000 6K monitor in front and my left and right. I've got two 4K LGs. You're right. So I love the setup. Yeah. I remember, you know, I, when I go into lawyers' offices back in the days when you would meet lawyers in person, mm -hmm. I would uh, like say, hey, how come you don't have like another monitor on your computer? They're like, you could do that. I'm like, oh yeah, it's really easy. And I show them how to do it. And, you know, yeah. they like contact me later. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe how fantastic it is to have that second monitor. Now, of course, it's fairly commonplace, I think, or more commonplace at least. Yeah. Say, so you mentioned your laptop, your monitors, smartphone. Yeah. So I've got the, the iPhone, okay. the AirPods. I mean, I'm pretty much all Apple and then obviously the Apple, the Ultra as well. So I, I Same like here. having it all. Yeah. Yep. They're great. They're, they're unbelievable. So yeah, the, the only thing that's not Apple in my setup is my noise cancelling headphones. I'm using the Bose noise cancelling headphones, yep. but they, they do the job at the moment. But I think when it's time to upgrade, it will be going full Apple. So I've had the, the Bose noise cancelling ones, or not the noise cancelling ones, the one below the noise cancelling, but they were yeah. pretty good. And I mean, it was fantastic sound. My wife and I went on vacation uh, a couple of years ago and... I had planned on buying or, not, or at least testing the AirPod Pro Max. And I just ran out of time. But while I was there, my phone fell into the water and got a little sand into it. So we had to go to the Apple store there. And while I was there, I had time to play with these. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm in love. And yeah. these are fantastic. And you know, these are great for podcasting because it really helps keep out the noise from around the mm -hmm. office. And I don't like having the wire necessarily connected to the computer because you move around and whatnot. The only thing is that, of course, people can't see any of this. They don't get to see the big cans that are on my head. So all right, we got your phone. We got your computer and monitors. Is there any other devices that you use in the office that perhaps you could share? No, I'm, I'm relatively simple like that. Okay. I just have those four devices and then that's it. Keep it simple. If that works, that's fantastic. Well, let's get into the questions. Question one, what are your top three automations? And with all due respect, I'm going to ask you to talk about stuff outside of LawPath. I promise you we're going to get to that in a minute. But yeah. what are some of your three automations that you like to use that's not part of your product? Yeah, sure. So I think first one would be shortcuts on my iPhone. Mm -hmm. So I've set up a number of shortcuts. When I leave the office, it automatically texts my wife, tell her I'm on the way home, <laughs> which is always a good one. When I jump into my car, it automatically launches my podcast. So I've just gone through and tried to kind of make those things that I do every day and automate them. And I found that to be great. And now I'm very reliant on them. So I think that's the first one. I'm obviously still playing around with how all of that works, but that's been really good. So if I may, are you using uh, CarPlay? I am, yes. How do you like that? How do you like the integration? It's incredible. I mean, I have found sometimes it can be, I plug it in with the power cord, not All using, right. and I found sometimes it can be a little bit buggy, but apart from that, I mean, comparing it to another car entertainment system, it's kind of way ahead. So oh, yeah. especially now that I'm using a lot of voice to text uh, through still, I find it, it's incredible. And what is your podcast aggregator of choice? So I'm just using the kind of standard Apple podcasts mm -hmm. app. And today that's been pretty good. I'm, I'm kind of one of those people that once I find something, I stick with it. And so I have my kind of right. five or six podcasts that I listen to that I subscribe to. And I'm really never hunting for new things. So I found that the, the standard Apple podcast app works really well for me. Have you tried Overcast? I did try Overcast yeah. a couple of years ago. 
I loved it. And I, I need to go back to it. it. It was really good. It's what I use. It's my podcast aggregator of choice. And I just haven't looked back. I, I don't do the paid subscription on it. Perhaps mm-hmm. I should. But the one thing that I like about it, and I'm sure Apple Podcasts do this as well, is I will actually play a lot of my podcasts at like 1.1 or 1.2 speed so I can get through more of them. And then like every now and then when I slow it down, it's like, oh, wow, this is actually a lot slower than mm-hmm. I realized. But they're fantastic. So we talked about shortcuts. They app, the Mm built-in app for your Apple devices. Do you have any other shortcuts to share? I'm going to get two more on it. Not on my Apple, not through my Apple devices. The other big, the other big piece of software I use for this type of automation is Zapier. Okay. I used it originally in business and then just found that there were lots of other things that I could do personally to make my life a little bit easier. So one of the really big ones is I actually zap my emails out of my email and into a spreadsheet, categorize them. So I've always found that I like to keep my inbox really clean and I've got a pretty good folder structure, but zapping them out into spreadsheets allows me to work on them a little bit further and then share them with my assistant. I use a virtual assistant. So having kind of almost a task sheet in Google Docs works really well. How do you like working with a virtual assistant? How does that function with computers and video and whatnot? It's fantastic. You know, lawyers, I think, are a little bit hesitant in some aspects of not having someone there, but in see if you will. And then there's also the current concern, at least from the United States, do we use VAs that are like not in the country? Mm-hmm. And is there security issues, privacy issues, et cetera? Yeah. It's been something I've been thinking about a lot because my VA is only about four months into the new role and I hadn't used a VA before. So I think I did a lot of research beforehand, kind of thinking about how to set up a really good system. She's based in the Philippines. She has an American accent, quite a strong mm-hmm. American accent. I'm out of the Philippines. So I never really found the, the distance or the the communication difficult. One thing that I was really skeptical about was actually how in-depth could she get into my work without sitting right next to me and kind of just vibing off me. But what I learned was documentation was the key. So we document and make playbooks for everything. So if I brief her on a task, once she's completed that task, she actually does a Loom video or a doc and actually documents all the steps and puts it into a Notion space. Mm -hmm. And so what we found is over the last four months, we've been building up the kind of hundreds of of playbooks of how to get things done, which one kind of helps her around the training, but also means that if I need to move on to somebody else, there's really strong documentation that's there that that they can use to train up. And now it's got to a point where she's managing my diary, my emails, a lot of projects. She helped me meet you and come on this podcast. So she's been doing a lot of those type of jobs. And what I've found is that it's just really freed me up. I had a little baby boy about six months ago and I kind of thought I'd be staying at the office until 9 p.m. every night. I need to figure out a way of kind of speeding up a lot of the admin that I'm doing in my life. And now I get to leave the office at five o'clock. It's fantastic. That is absolutely fantastic. And of course, she's obviously the perfect VA because she introduced us. (laughs) That's right. So if I may ask, and this is slightly off topic, what kind of assignments are you giving her? And I, you, you mentioned you're using Notion. Uh, for the audience, what is Notion? So Notion is at its very kind of core and uh, a note-taking and project management type. You know, what I really like about it is I used to keep all of my documentation in Google Doc as part of Google Drive and I would have folders set up. Notion is just what well, I find kind of Google Docs on steroids. It, it allows you to have a different space, invite people into that space and then have different folder structures. You can do roadmaps 
calendars. It's very good at linking pages to other pages. So you okay. can kind of say, you know, this is the task and then it links to the actual the list of the different actions that need to be taken in the task or links to videos. But really where it stands apart from a lot of the other software I've used is it's got a very strong database building feature. So okay. you can build up databases. So actually, to give you a really perfect example, Please. my VA is, her name's Clean. And so I said to Clean, look, at the beginning of the year, I'd love to start attending and being on more podcasts. So one of the projects that she did for me was she went out, she researched and she found a hundred podcasts that, you know, looked really good. She put them all in a database. She ranked them by kind of their podcast um, score, you know, out of five stars, their listener reviews, the topics, all of that, and was able to put it in a big database. And then I was able to go through very quickly and filter by kind of the topics I wanted to speak about and the, and the guests I thought would be really popular. It gave me a list of 20. And then she actually, through my email, then started reaching out to people like yourself and saying, hey, you know, would you like to have a chat to Dom? So I think something that lawyers often um, don't have time for is a lot of the BD and the kind of getting your name out there or your firm's name out there. And it can take a lot of time to do it properly. You know, organically, you might get asked to be on in an event or on a panel or on a podcast, but actually to do it in a systematic way and reach right. out, it takes a lot of time. So she took that project on, spent a couple of weeks doing it. And now I've been lucky enough to be on some really great podcasts that I probably wouldn't have been on without her. She was great. And the introduction, I think I asked her a question or two just to say, you know, make sure we were a fit. And I think she responded and it, clearly I, I do think we were fit. Otherwise I wouldn't have had you on. No offense. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, actually, of course, the fact that you're a Mac guy, you know, you already won me over. But so let's see, I think that's two, two automations. So I think I want one more from you. Yeah, I, try, sure. I, I try to get, you know, lawyers, we do things in threes. So that's why I try to stick with yeah. the three answers. Yes. Yeah, so the last automation that I'm using, let me kind of think through. Oh, so it would be to do with Slack. So as I'm big fan of Slack, the communication mm -hmm. app. We run, I run a lot of my personal zaps into Slack, but I, a lot of business zaps into Slack as well. But one thing I've been using a lot recently is just the delayed and timed messaging. So I like to do a lot of my work outside of business hours, okay. um, but I never expect my team to be working outside right. of business hours. So if I'm up at five in the morning, the last thing they want is their Slack's pinging saying, hey, the boss is telling me they need to do all these things. So it's a very simple one, but I've really helped with team and kind of morale, which is I'll time delay all of my slacks or my emails until nine in the morning or 10 in the morning to make sure that the team get it at a reasonable hour. And we have a lot of international team members as well. So it works really well with time zones. So a relatively basic one there, but one that helps a lot. No, I found that like my clerks, they tend to work different hours because, you know, they're in school. Some are night owls, others are early birds. And when you're at work, when you're doing work, I need you to have Slack on. When you're not at work, turn it off. Because if that's on, I'm thinking you're at work. And if it's off, then, you know, I, I could still send you a Slack and not bother you. Now, you yeah. mentioned that you also mentioned your emails. So are you using Zapier to send out emails? So no, with Zapier, I'm just, I use Gmail as my... Okay. My email and so there I'll just use the the scheduled email time right, feature right. that they've got built in. So I think for a long time when I was a junior lawyer, sending an email on the weekend was like a bit of a virtue signal to my seniors that I was working through the right. weekend. But right, you know, I'm, I've moved past that kind of stage of my life. So now anything that happens after five o'clock on a Friday, the email doesn't send until nine o'clock on the Monday morning. I use something called Mail Butler for the yeah. Apple Mail program, and I, yeah. I do similar things. You know, I will respond 
respond to emails over the weekend, but they don't go sent out until like eight or nine in the morning on Monday. Or if it's yeah. past seven, eight o'clock at night, they'll go out in the morning because yeah. I don't want to be, like you said, I don't want to be known to be available like at god awful hours or on the weekends yeah. when, or worse yet, when we're on vacation. Yeah. I used to use a software called Yesware, okay. which was an email tracking software. Our sales teams use it to kind of track when the emails are open to make sure that their sales proposals are being looked at. And that had a very good kind of delayed email feature. But I found that the Google native feature is kind of caught up with all its functionality. So I just use that now. Pardon the interruption. I hope you're enjoying the techsavvyleader.page podcast as much as I enjoy making them. Consider buying us a cup of coffee or two to help defray some of the production costs. Thanks and enjoy. And I think a lot of the other programs are beginning to bake that kind of functionality in, allowing yeah. you to send later, read receipts, or, or snooze for a later date. Yeah. Now, let's move on to the second question. And I'll preface this by saying you'll have an opportunity to talk about how LawPath works in part. But before I do, I, please uh, describe for the listener what LawPath is. Sure. So LawPath is an online legal platform that allows small businesses to complete legal tasks themselves. So here in Australia, we've helped about 400,000 small businesses essentially complete tasks that maybe they didn't need to go to an attorney for. We're, we're seen as quite a disruptive business. And one of the reasons we're looking to disrupt the legal industry is that a lot of times people can't afford an attorney. It's a bit of a barrier to go and visit an attorney. And sometimes what they actually need to do is quite simple. So it might be draft a resignation letter or, or review a quick non-disclosure agreement. And a lot of the time the attorneys will say, look, that's a pretty small piece of work. Maybe it's not worth my time. So what we've done is we've built software with partners such as LexisNexis and LegalZoom to um, automate a lot of those processes. So setting up a business, registering a trademark, we've built software that connects with the government that does all of that. So yeah, lots of small businesses. We've just launched in California as well. So we're, we're in America and we're really just trying to bring the price of, of legal services down. Firstly, here in Australia, where I'm from and, and now in, in the state. So is California the only state or do you have any others in the United States? We're just in California at the moment. We've just gone in as that's our kind of initial testing ground. Right, and right. As we grow out, we'll expand into other states. Actually, any states coming up that you can share? So it looks or... like the next state will probably be Arizona. Oh, okay. Was there yeah. anything unique about those states that sort of made a good introductory fit? So into, initially, California made sense because we have a number of partners based over there. Okay. And then Arizona is actually probably the most advanced around their rules around non-lawyers owning law firms. And so the model is we have a law firm and a private business connected together. So it fits quite well for us. Excellent. Excellent. And I appreciate you sharing that. And will we see you at the ABA Tech Show next year? I won't. Next year, probably. So I'll be over and spending, I've done two trips over to, okay. to America this year. Again, I'll be spending some, a lot more time over there next year. Well, make sure that you say hello because I should be at the tech show uh, in Chicago. I think it's January. And I'd love to meet up and say hello and shake hands in person, as they say. But let's move on to the second question. What are the three biggest pain points that law firms are still experiencing with the adoption of technology today? So I will talk from the, the space that LawPath is in, which is in the- Yes, please. 
small business attorneys. And I think number one is is the behavioral change. You know, it's getting comfortable with actually using technology. I think one interesting thing about the legal industry is that the model still works quite well. You know, attorneys and, and law firms, it's not broken. They can still make quite good money and good revenue. However, by adopting more and more technology, you're creating more and more efficiencies. But sometimes that goes against the incentives of the legal industry, which is time-based right. billing. Sometimes the more longer it takes, actually, the more money I will make. Whereas what we're seeing, especially down at the small business level, is that value-based billing and fixed pricing is what consumers and customers are asking for. And therefore, we're seeing that is driving these small business attorneys to use more software. So I think number one is actually just, as you mentioned before, the legal industry can be quite risk averse. It just takes a bit of time for them to get comfortable using new software. But what we found is that once you see a bit of critical mass, people get very comfortable with using the new software. You know, part of the problem, I think, is also the Bar Association. You know, some of them still frown on flat fees or fixed fees for doing projects yeah. when, quite frankly, it, it just makes more sense because it if the lawyer is keeping track of their hours or time for basically small projects, as you kind of inferred, it's not worth their time. But on the other hand, if they have a you know a set flat fee and they need to get something done and get it done well and efficiently, fantastic. But I think there are a lot of different cogs that need to be changed and before that can truly be moving forward in an efficient manner using technology. So that's one. I'm going to pull you on two more. Yeah, sure. So I think the next would be around document automation. So mm -hmm. what we find is that a lot of our attorneys that are using our platform or working with clients on our platform will still default to what they're used to, which is typically Word or typically their kind of old precedents. Whereas there are a lot of really great document automation softwares out there specifically connected to practice management systems that can be used to speed things up. But again, it kind of goes back to this idea that, you know, the lawyers are risk averse. They want to make sure that they're using software that they're very comfortable with. And even if there is some software that might make things a little bit more efficient, they would prefer to go with the safer options. So what, we've, what we're seeing a lot of is even though we encourage our lawyers internally and our lawyers that we work with on our platform to use new automation systems or workflow mm -hmm. systems, they will typically always default back to, I've used this precedent before, I'm going to put it in Word, I'm going to do a doc compare, and I'm just going to use what I'm comfortable with. So we, we've been using a lot of AI within our platform at the moment and really encouraging our lawyers to actually at least review their clauses against the AI base or, or just kind of speed things up a little bit, but a lot of hesitation there to share data and you know compare clauses. So I think just this idea that law is changing a lot at the moment yep. and I think technology is coming into the industry and what we've seen from previous industries or our colleagues in other industries is that you can embrace technology and it will make you a better profession. The accountants are a really good example of this. You know, they the bookkeeping platforms came through the accounting industry 15 years ago, QuickBooks into it and, and totally changed things. But now it, it made the profession better. Lawyers are at that point now where they're starting to say, you know, are there better tools for me to use and will it make the experience better for clients? So I'm hoping that we start seeing, especially in Australia, I'm not as familiar with the SMB law attorneys in the States, but in Australia, with more and more software, I think can only be better at, for, the, for, the, for the industry. 
I had interviewed uh, about a month ago, mm-hmm. our judge, Mary McCormick, and I, I think where we came to a point was she said something to the effect of AI and computers and software are not going to replace attorneys, but attorneys who do not know how to use AI and other bits of software are going to be left behind. Yeah. And I agree with her. I agree with you 100%. So that's two. So you yeah. need one more. I just as a quick side point there, I think sure. you probably saw the, the report that came out from Goldman Sachs about mm-hmm. two or three months ago that said 44% of lawyers are going to be replaced from AI. I, I really disagree with that. I think that the tasks that they do might be replaced by AI, but the lawyers won't be replaced. They'll just change the way that they work. And so, yeah, there's a bit of fear mongering at the moment, I think, within the legal industry that there's a lot of new software coming through that might hurt the industry, mm-hmm. but I honestly think that it will just improve it. So I think the last kind of pain point we're seeing, especially from our customers, is this idea of a lawyer being commercial versus mm-hmm. a lawyer being, you know, legal. I think... So let me try and explain that a different way. I think that a lawyer should always, or an attorney should always conduct this kind of risk versus cost analysis on any of the work that they're doing. I think if you're a top tier lawyer working with a large corporate, then obviously there's huge risk and therefore all the checks and balances need to happen and everything needs to be perfect. But what we see down at the, and obviously there'll be a big fee behind that work, but what we see down at the SMB level is that Businesses are having to constantly compromise and constantly make this kind of, do I have enough money or is it worth me going and speaking to a lawyer? And I think sometimes lawyers aren't flexible enough to say, look, I can come down and help you. I'm going to help you with these three really important things. But then actually these other three things you can either try and do yourself or you can you know, find some alternative solution. Whereas a, a really traditional lawyer, especially what we see is they'll say, look, I have to do all these six things and it's going to be this price. And what actually happens is the business puts their head in the sand and says, oh, I'm not going to engage at all. And so I'd really like to see what we're really trying to encourage at LawPath is this idea of unbundling legal services and saying not an attorney that has to do everything. You know, part of the process could be done with software. Some of it could be done with a paralegal. And let's leave the really important bit, the important element to the attorney. So I think changing that mindset, what we've seen is firms that change that mindset and do work on that unbundling of legal services actually end up with a much better client experience. But I can also respect that they're fearing that they're going to be losing money if the big named attorney isn't just spending all this time doing all that because it's a billable hour. Exactly. And so you just got to change the way you're doing business. You're exactly right. I think that's the thing. It's Again, the incentive isn't there to actually move towards that model because it could mean if you're running a traditional practice that your revenue drops. So you have to change the way you're doing it. And look, I'm not saying that this isn't across the board. I think there is a very, there is a right place to have the traditional type of legal advice where you do have the big name attorney doing everything for you. But I just believe as well that at the other end of the spectrum, there is this space where law firms can change their models. Excellent. Excellent. I appreciate you sharing that. So for our third and last question, what are the top three non-traditional opportunities for lawyers in the legal tech sector? Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity for for non-lawyers so or non-traditional lawyers. So, you know, we have two prompt engineers here at Law Park that work. There are ex-lawyers that work as part of our tech team in actually training and building our LM. So our the model that we use for our Law Path AI, we use all of the data from all of our hundreds of thousands of clients, anonymized, of course, and they are actually building the prompts that go to essentially making sure that the customers see 
the right information at the right time. And it's a very unique job because you need to have some basic coding skills, but more importantly, you have to have the legal background to know when the answers are right and wrong so that you can train the model. So that's been a brand new role that we only hired about six months ago as we started building our okay. AI system. So the reason why I was pausing you is, you know, you mentioned that you anonymize, of course, the your client's information, which is exactly what needs to be done. Are you worried about PII exposure, personal identification information? How so do you, one, and how do you deal with that? Because if you've been watching the news, of course, if everyone's been watching the news, you know, there's been concerns about chat GPT and other AIs releasing public information out into the internet. And there was a judge in, I think it's North Carolina, who has put a kibosh on the use of third-party docketing software because mm-hmm. of apparently an attorney, he or she inadvertently filed something that should have been filed under seal and it was actually filed in public. And then of course, everyone disseminates that. And I think the judge may have overreacted a little bit because it wasn't the fault of the third party software. It was the, the fault of the attorney. Humans still yeah. make mistakes, but I'm sorry, I think I interrupted. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it's something that we have been thinking about a lot because it is a huge risk, specifically mm-hmm. in the legal industry when there's so many more privileged and confidential right. issues than maybe a normal industry. So one of the layers of software that we've had to build over the top of our AI system before it connects in with our platform is this ability to pull out any kind of personalized identifying information before it touches any of the AI software. So, you know, we are not, the way we're using our AI is more around, because we have so much data coming in around what workflows or which paths people should go down workflows or what documents people should use. We're more working on that type of thing rather than kind of really delving into the documents and looking at the specific clauses and the information. So for example, if you're a a construction worker or a contractor and you are coming to Law Path to to receive some kind of help in setting up business and getting advice, we will look at all of the data from all the other contractors around the country and find the common paths that they went through and then record that for you. So it's not as risky around the personal identity information because we're not going that deep quite yet but we know that eventually to give really precise outputs we will this part of all law firms you know there's a lot of talk at the moment about people building their own chat gpts and things like that and all of the law firms are all having to deal with this same problem which is we need extra layers of protection in the legal industry how do we build that in so i'm curious and of course i don't want you to give away the secret of your sauce talk about that extra layer how difficult is it to create that layer to make that programming? Look, we were lucky in that because we are generating the businesses and generating the legal contracts for our users, we can precisely identify where all of the personal identification type data is. And so we can very easily say, okay, well, these are the embeddings that we need to pull out before we send it to the LLM. Whereas we know once we start using external contracts or external data, we will then have to use the language processing to kind of identify the data. Whereas for us, we know where it is because it's almost tagged. So phase one for us was easy. Phase two is going to be difficult. And to be honest, I don't think it will be us that solves it. I think we're waiting for some other smart people out there to solve that problem. And then Walt with white label the software. So other firms who want to create 
software like yours that's going to have PII in it, that creating that filter or that layer, if you will, is an issue to be addressed, but it's not an impossible hurdle to meet. I think it's kind of an internationally recognized that lawyers and law firms will need this extra layer of protection on top of whatever model they're using. And there are firms out there or companies out there that are going to solve that for us. And so I'm not concerned. I think it'll be a plug and play a piece of software that you can just put into your stack, your tech stack that mm -hmm. sits there between your system and any kind of model that you're plugging into and does all of this de-identification and pulls out any private information for you. Excellent. Excellent. I appreciate you sharing that. But you still owe me two yeah, answers. Two more. So number two is product managers. So what um, I think there's a really um, great opportunity for, and again, leaning on what we have internally at LawPath, we have four product managers that work as the translators between our development team and our mm -hmm. lawyers. So what we find is, you know, our basic process is let's find a, a workflow or a process that our lawyers are doing all the time. And then let's try and we call them commoditized processes. And then let's try and build software that can help or replace the process that the lawyers are doing. But what I've found is that sometimes when you get a bunch of developers and a bunch of lawyers in the room, they're talking right, very right. different language. So the product managers really act as those interpreters and have a background in tech, but also a background in legal and build out and manage the projects as they go through. And I think what you'll find, what we're finding is more and more, even traditional larger firms are building software internally to make themselves more efficient. Right, and right. you will need product managers and project managers kind to take you through there and do that. Are you finding lawyers taking those positions or JDs taking those positions? Yes. Okay. So what we found is that typically so far anyway, it's been an attorney or a lawyer that spent some time in the legal industry right, right. and then wanted a bit of a career change. They've typically gone and done a short course in project or product management just to get some kind of basic right. underlying understanding and then joined. And so most of the learning curve is actually on the technical side. But, you know, I think there's this big argument that always goes on at legal schools, especially when they're talking about law, legal technology, which is, should lawyers know how to code? And my response to that is always, I wouldn't hire, if I want a really good attorney, I'll hire someone that went just to law school and specialize right. on that. If I want a really good developer, I'll hire just that. I'm never looking for the one in the same person. So I think it's more about being very good at one area, being very good at law, but at least being, have a basic understanding of the other side. And so that's where the product managers sit. But you realize you're also talking to a group who have mastered Microsoft Word. <laughs> that is true. That is true. It might be why, you know, I think the, the oldest product manager we have in the company is kind of 27 years old. So they're, uh, they're young attorneys. Thank you for making me feel old. <laughs> and then number three, mm -hmm, um, please. Three for kind of non-traditional opportunities in law. I'd actually say sits within our marketing teams and our content teams. Mm -hmm. So what we found is that to run a software business, specifically a product-led software business, we have to do a lot of organic and content to bring in our clients and customers through non-traditional channels. You know, in, instead of the traditional events or referrals or, or Google advertising, we bring in a lot of people through content. And so we have a number of writers on staff that uh -huh. were traditional lawyers and now write a lot of content and a lot of guides around what small businesses should be doing. We're big believers in giving as much content out for free and then really letting the client decide when they want to engage us. And so we have two lawyers on the team and a number of offshored writers. They're not actually legally qualified, but writers that help us generate a couple of hundred guides and blogs a month. And then that goes out into on the uh -huh. net and then to bring in traffic. So again, the writers 
that we have internally were lawyers. And as a lot of lawyers love to do, they just love to write. And so now, now that's what they're doing every day. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I appreciate you sharing all this, Dom. Uh, so tell us, where can people find you? Well, if you want to find .com, you can Google us. We have a, both our Australian and our US site. If you want to find me on LinkedIn, it's Dominic Woolridge. And if you want to find me on X or pre- formerly known as Twitter, it's the, <laughs> I love talking about legal technology. I love um, sharing things about legal technology. So always very happy to talk to people and hear from people that are thinking about it. Well, I appreciate you being on with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the TechSavvyLawyer.page podcast. Our next episode will be posted in about two weeks. If you have any ideas about a future episode, please contact me at Michael DJ at the TechSavvyLawyer.page. Have a great day and happy luring.